0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Women in Foreign Policy podcast. I'm Ellie, and in this episode, I spoke to journalist and podcast host Nicola Kelly about life as a journalist and how to change careers. You've had a really interesting and varied career. Um, so far. Could you introduce yourself by telling our listeners a little bit about your career and how you've got to where you are today?
1: Yeah so I'm Nicola Kelly I'm a journalist now Um, I took a slightly circuitous route into journalism so I started many years ago um, as a civil servant. Um, I studied English and French at Exeter University And I did various different things while I was there. So I edited the university newspaper, um, stage and screen section, so reviewing theatre and film. And then I spent a year abroad in France, which was still the best year of my life. Um, And when I came back, kind of quite soon after I came back, um, I lived in Rome for a while straight after university. And when I came back from there... I got a job for six months, a fixed term contract at the Foreign Office in London, in the press office. Um, So I've been working in a little bit in PR before that. Um, And then this opportunity came up in strategic communications at the Foreign Office, um, which was too good an opportunity to pass up. So I went into the Foreign Office. I was there for six months. And quite soon after I was there, my amazing manager, uh, who I'm still in contact with, Hannah, encouraged me to go for this job that cropped up in Brussels. Um, It was a a locally engaged post um, working for the consulate and the multilateral embassy called UCREP. Uh, I believe it's still called UCREP. Um, And I worked there kind of, I began as a press officer and then I worked up to deputy spokesperson level um, which sounds very grand Um, (laughs) but essentially it was a press officer role um, and I led on a particular brief which was the foreign affairs and defense brief Um, so there was one person ahead of me who was the chief spokesperson for the embassy uh, and uh, then I was the deputy spokesperson and I was there I think I was just really fortuitous that I was there at a time where foreign affairs was a particularly interesting juncture. So the Arab Spring, I arrived in 2010, um, the Arab Spring sort of sprung (laughs) into action it began, uh, started. Um, I was working on Libya. um, We were working with the National Transition Council um, and then Syria. Um, And then Syria became my big, my big story while I was there. Um, uh, I also worked on things like sanctions policy, on Iran and various other places, and then on the Syrian regime. So it was kind of EU policy, but working on the Middle East, and it was utterly fascinating. And then a job came up in Istanbul, working with the Syrian National Coalition. Um, And again, I was very fortuitous in that I arrived around the same time as we were starting, the British government was starting to train up uh, national civil civil defence units, Um, which then became the White Helmets. Um, They've now won a Nobel Peace Prize. They have had a Netflix, um, you know, very, very well-viewed documentary made about them. Um, And my boss, James LeMessurier, who sadly died in 2019, um, I worked with him on setting it all up. So we trained up civil defence units in southern Turkey. Um, We worked with the Syrian police. We worked with lots of different people who came over the border uh, from Syria into Turkey, and we train them up. Uh, I then, uh, la- last but not least, in the civil in civil service, I moved to the Home Office. Once I left the Foreign Office, I moved uh, to the Home Office uh, immigration desk. I heard that this was going to be an incredible career opportunity for me, so um, it was going to be working obviously on an you know, international topic. I've been working in you know, international settings and environments for many years up to that point. And so I thought this was gonna be really interesting and kind of in keeping with, uh, with my background. Um, essentially the role was implementing the hostile environment policy. So it's was 2013, well, kind of around early 2014 when I was there. So the go-home vans had been circulating, there were net migration targets to be met uh, to get net migration down to the tens of thousands, Um, various different scandals came up when I was there, Um, so we were essentially fighting fires on a day-to-day basis and I wasn't there long. In fact, I said to my mum the day before I started in that job, I've got a sinking feeling I've done I've made the wrong decision I've done something very um, very silly and indeed I had because I then decided to leave the civil service leave government comms entirely and move into journalism and I've been reporting on the on the home office uh, less on the foreign office but more on the home office and immigration policy in the UK ever since.
0: Wow that's, that's so interesting that
1: the day before you
0: started you had that sort of sense of impending doom that's incredible
1: very telling yeah Yeah,
0: (laughs) um as you said it's you've kind of taken a a long route into journalism um and I haven't heard of many people going from comms to journalism I've heard it more commonly moving the other way do you think there's anything that you learned in particular from your comms roles that you've taken with you into your journalism
1: um I think I mean, journalism is kind of doing the actual thing rather than talking about it. So, um, I mean, obviously in comms, you are writing, you're writing, you know, press releases, you're writing statements um, on occasion, particularly in Brussels and Istanbul, I was writing speeches. So there's that skill set. And then there's things like skim reading and all the kinds of transferable skills that you'd get from comms that are useful in journalism. Um but I think in journalism, the thing that that I always wanted to do was sort of trade in information. Um, and I think that that is what a journalist essentially does. It's kind of gathering information from as wide a range of sources as you can, verifying that information, and then finding a format or a way to put it out there, so that could be you know in print, in audio, in video, various different formats. Um, but, yeah, I think the thing that I Really love about reporting, which I didn't get in comms, was speaking to real people. Um, You know, getting out there, getting out and about, finding out what's really going on, speaking to, yeah, speaking to real people and um, sort of finding out about the issues, the policies that have affected those people and what impact it's made on their lives. Um, Comms is obviously a lot more office based, it's all about. Uh, particularly government comms it's about pleasing your ministers it's about thinking around particular set of messaging often drafting that messaging um the good thing is you get to see the way government works from the inside and you've often got direct access to ministers often secretaries of state um it's a really great learning ground i wouldn't want to put anybody off working in government communications um ultimately the home office wasn't for me Um, but I got a lot out of working in government comms. Um, I suppose another similarity is you, in both roles, you need to grasp very complex information quite quickly, often under time pressure, and figure out a way to explain it really succinctly and in an accessible way. And I found that really useful in journalism. Um, But ultimately, I think what what I like most is speaking to people and getting their voices out there rather than it being from a minister or from you know a government spokesperson or something it's from from the horse's mouth it's from the person that's directly affected.
0: Was there a like a light bulb moment where you realized that's what you wanted to do or was it a a slower process of kind of realizing that you liked certain things certain aspects of your communications jobs um, and seeing them in journalism
1: I think I always really wanted to be a journalist. Um, Again, in conversations with my parents, my mum in particular, I think I said when I was about 14 or 15, I wanted to work in broadcast journalism. I wanted to work for the World Service. It was always something I aspired to do. Um, I always wanted to work in radio. Podcasts weren't really around at the time because I'm ancient now. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was always something that I... I thought of doing and I'd worked with journalists for so many years and I'd seen them you know had a drink with them and then they'd be like oh I've got to go off and do a live and I was like oh that sounds great that sounds really exciting I wonder if I could do that one day um so I'd always been around journalists um And yeah, I kind of, I had a good understanding of what they did. Um, I worked with them directly in terms of messaging and, you know, press releases and organising press conferences um, and giving comments and quotes off the record usually. Um, But yeah, so I suppose in that sense, it was quite gradual because I had a a background and working with journalists, but not doing it myself. But I think in terms of moving into journalism... It was when I was at the home office, and the culture—the culture wasn't really me. Let's put it like that. It didn't really f- sit that well with me. Um, it was very macho. It was very work hard, play hard, um, and it was quite a gentleman's club. Mm. Uh, I found the attitudes quite surprising. Uh, let's say <laughs> um, and it was just very different to the foreign office I think there I'd work with quite like-minded people um, it was very proactive so you were sort of trying to build uh, really strong bilateral relationships and multilateral relationships and I was always out and about it was just really fun I was always out at receptions and different things Um just having a great time and working on really interesting topics and um, you know very fast moving issues. And then when I went to the home office, it was very defensive, it felt quite insular um, and just a very, very different uh, environment and very different people that work there. Um, I also didn't ever meet the people or see the faces of the people who were directly affected by the policies that I was talking about. Um, and that didn't really sit right with me um so in terms of the light bulb moment it was um probably when i was at a news conference one morning and everybody was talking about you know just going back to that kind of macho work hard play hard culture somebody said um i won't quote them directly because uh, it's a little bit rude but they basically insinuated that there wasn't a great deal of difference between sunnis and shias and i uh i f- i remember feeling quite shocked and i think because i'd worked with syrians some of my friends i'd lost i've lost friends you know i've lost many friends along the way in that conflict um and yeah i just i just found it really shocking and and quite ignorant i think so um at that point i just thought I knew this wasn't for me, but now I really know it's time to move on.
0: That's really interesting. It sounds like from your experience, those bits that you love about journalism and that you saw in journalists when you worked in communications were those bits that you enjoyed about your communications role in the Foreign Office, of so being out and about and speaking to the people that your policies affect, whereas at the Home Office, that was even though it was still a communications role, it was a very different situation. very different aspects of the career that you experienced. That's really interesting. Um, Would you say there's any other sort of surprising similarities between communications and
1: journalism? Um, I think I think I'm not sure there are as many similarities as I'd like to think there are. Um, um, I think explaining things succinctly is Is quite a fundamental part of both roles um, and trying to talk in an accessible way. Um, I think ministers don't often tend to do that. And I think the current Home Office doesn't do that particularly well. Um, A good grasp of uh, what was called digital communications at the time. Social media now um, is obviously really important as well in both in both jobs. yeah, I mean, I think both both jobs you're, you're dealing with you're dealing with information and you're dealing with uh, policy, so um, there are similarities on that front. But I think the nature of the work and certainly the culture of uh, the culture of the environments that you work in, uh, the people that you're dealing with on a day to day basis, are, are quite different.
0: It sounds as if as well that your time in Istanbul and your time working with the Syrian National Coalition and um other aspects of the Syrian civil war sounds as if they've had a really um a really big impact on your career uh could you tell us a little bit about what your the role was like that you had there and um what kind of effect that's had on the career and the things you report on
1: now oh I had a massive massive impact on me personally and professionally um yeah I I was quite hesitant about taking that job, actually. There were security risks, I was told, um, even though it was Istanbul-based. Um, and I'd been offered a job in Delhi. Um, there were various other job opportunities that had come up that I was interested in. Um, but I wanted to work, as I say, I'd worked on on the Middle East, on Middle East policy for quite a while, um, immediately before that. So, yeah, so that kind of felt like the most interesting or or relevant next move um yeah it involved a lot of traveling around which was amazing <laughs> it was really great to be based in Istanbul but be down in southern Turkey over in Beirut over in Jordan um I had Arabic lessons as part of my kind of would-be package um so I was often offered um one-to-one Arabic lessons three times a week which I think at at one point was every day (laughs) for two hours uh before work began so it was an early start but I can't complain because we had I had a fantastic Arabic teacher who uh who I'm still in touch with who uh yeah became a great friend and we sat looking over the Bosphorus and and talking, trying to talk in Arabic um, and writing down vocabulary and stuff, so it was really great. Um, In terms of the job itself, so that was kind of what I was going into, I suppose, or what I knew I was going into. Um, It was quite chaotic. It was quite a chaotic environment because it had a kind of startup type atmosphere because the the White Helmets were only just starting up at the time. we were just trying to make sense of it all and war is uh is a messy business obviously and it's confusing and um you know trying to get impartial accurate information out of the country was very tricky so we were working with citizen journalists as they were called at the time um so yeah trying to get sort of footage um so we would have these these guys still inside, usually guys, sometimes girls, but inside Syria um, and they would put these BGANs or kind of satellites uh, satellites up on roofs and they would try and get footage out of Syria to us. And then we would repackage that material and offer it to international outlets, so Al Jazeera, the BBC, um, CNN, various different places. So that was one aspect of my role. and then, as I say, I worked with James um, and various others um, down in southern Turkey. Um, and we, yeah, we we kind of got people out of Syria um, and did sort of simulated exercises of training, training up. It started with the police, um, started with the Aleppo police, training them up um, in southern Turkey um, and sort of setting up scenarios where people would, yeah, be yeah basically rescuing people out from under rubble, which is exactly what they do now, so that that was the very beginnings of it and um yeah, there were many other aspects of my role, but uh those were the two main facets I think um yeah, the environment was really interesting, really fast moving but yeah i I when I think back on it, I met up with some friends um three great Syrian friends who are based, uh two of them are based here actually, and one of them's based in Canada. Um so they're all out, um, they're all out of of Turkey now. Um, but they've still got lots of family and friends inside Syria. Um and so yeah, I, I have I have yeah regular conversations with friends. So I, I have a good understanding of what's going on still inside Syria um and how fast moving it is. Uh, but yeah hugely hugely interesting time Um, and I think it gave me a really deep understanding of the issues um, and a sense of how events on the ground, events that you read about, headline news, how it's really affecting people Um, and that's something I really wanted to sort of take through to journalism so I hope what I do with my journalism work is sort of putting the voices of often unheard people first or forward um so it's almost like reportage on the ground type reporting um so I like to try and keep out of it as much as I can so I hope I'm not really a voice in it um but yeah I hope that those people get get to be heard in the same way that some of my Syrian colleagues weren't.
0: That's really interesting you clearly see the role as of journalists to be um, to amplify the voices of others rather than to use their own voice.
1: I think it should be. Yeah, often it's not. <laughs> um, I think some of the best journalists are those that put that put unheard voices front and centre. Um, and yeah, a range. I mean, it has to be a range of views. It has to be as impartial and um, kind of up to date and accurate as possible. But uh and it needs to cover obviously editorially it needs to cover like all bases um but yeah i think it's imperative that we have those those voices out there and we have those voices heard um and often in a conflict situation or in you know asylum in uk immigration i cover now those voices are so often buried sadly so um yeah i think it's really really important that we we get those those stories out there
0: that's, a, that's it's really nice to hear from a journalist <laughs> um, <laughs> and say sometimes it's not always the case um yeah. do, I, you must be incredibly proud of the the work you did in turkey and and um the b- very beginning of the white helmets that must be something that continues to inspire you throughout the rest of your career
1: um proud i, g- I guess yeah i don't i don't think of in terms of pride, I don't think, um or pr- being proud of it. I'm, p- I'm proud of them, very proud of them. Um, yeah, as I say, I met up with a few of them last, not last week, a few weeks ago. And it was really great to hear how it's all progressing. Um, one thing I found quite sad and difficult to hear was, I mean, james, James was James was an incredibly charismatic leader um and a humanitarian and he had a very clear vision for what he wanted the white helmets as they became known in the west not in syria um they became known in the west as the white helmets and he had a yeah very clear vision for what he wanted that to become and it's now it's enormous it's like incredibly incredibly well known and well you know pretty well resourced um i know that the british government the us government the canadian governments you know the the main funders have kind of you know incredibly sadly kind of lost interest in syria and in the conflict and what's going on there because that is the way of things once once a conflict rumbles on for a long time there's kind of conflict fatigue among western governments and you know ukraine and afghanistan and various different conflicts have happened ever since um so yeah the longer something goes on the less the less a western government's willing to to fund efforts there um so i know yeah from friends who still work with the white helmets heading it up um now james has gone um i know that it's incredibly difficult for them to try and raise interest and raise funds to to keep it going so yeah i just encourage everybody to uh donate I don't want to <laughs> to, want to sort of make a pledge but um yeah I think it's really important that, that that work continues
0: um if we can I'd like to talk a little bit more about your career personally um and in particular becoming a mother um, <laughs> <laughs> um how has that impacted your career was um was it something you weren't sure how it would affect your career um was it something was becoming a mother something you knew you would have to factor into your career has it made your career any different in any way
1: i think i knew that taking a break um i originally thought i would take about 6 months i'm self-employed so i thought i would take around 6 months i then absolutely loved my time with my little boy so i kept adding another month on here and there and extending my time with him. I think I expected that that it would be, it would not be difficult, but it would take me time to get back up to speed. Um, and that in that sense, it would kind of set me back very slightly. That's not to place, I mean, I, I absolutely love my time with him, but getting back up to speed was, was surprisingly tricky actually, particularly on a brief like UK immigration that moves really, really quickly. Um, I also found it really difficult to be separated from him at first, I still find that difficult. Um, But yeah, I think finding the right childcare setting is absolutely essential. And until you've done that, you can't really concentrate on work knowing that your child's not all that happy. Um, So yeah, so I think I knew those things. I knew that that potentially it might take a while to get back up to speed uh that it might be difficult to be separated from him um but I, <laughs> since he's been in child care he has been sick a lot um and so i think illnesses various different illnesses have proved sort of quite tricky to overcome as well so that sort of set me back slightly further um so yeah in career terms that that initial phase has has been slightly complicated and maybe slightly surprising in that sense. Um, you have to be super super organised uh, with your workload, but you also have to be super organised at home, um, sorting out you know drop offs and pickups and the sort of day to day life um, and just being incredibly time efficient and productive in the time in the hours that you have to yourself um you know using that time as as productively um and wisely i guess (laughs) as you as you can um and looking for opportunities i think because i'm a freelancer i'm always looking for opportunities and and speaking to lots of different people and sort of trying to to build um you know more more contacts more networks um get more sources um but now I'm really keen. Now that he's happy and settled, um, I feel I can get out there again. I can get out there, out and about reporting again. And I absolutely love it. Um, I love my work so much. So it's really great to be, to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's kind of balancing that, balancing the the responsibilities at home and at work. Um, are that's 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 tricky and I think that's something that people you know lots of friends say that's that's something that you're kind of navigating for for those early years so that's something that you you, know, you just figure out as you go along um but yeah having a really clear idea of what you want to achieve and just really going for it has has been my sort of mainstay or that's been my um yeah my my way through or my way of figuring it all out
0: it sounds like um everything I underestimated about my own (laughs) mum
1: everybody (laughs) Everybody does you don't know it's incredible I say this to my mum all the time you don't know until you become a parent like how much your parents have done for you and yeah how uh you know how much you underestimate and at times been slightly ungrateful (laughs) for um, all the sacrifices that parents have to make um but you know, it's all, it's all very much worth it.
0: That's good to hear. Um, So I guess my final question for you is, do you have any career advice for mothers looking to, either looking to change their career in foreign policy or mothers in foreign policy generally, or indeed women in foreign policy generally?
1: I reckon just jump in, um, just jump back in, as much as you can try and jump back into what you're doing um be really proactive and um go about things with confidence I think people often say when they come back from taking a break from maternity leave or would be maternity leave if you're self-employed um that your confidence can be affected um I was conscious of that and I really wanted to sort of go back into it, asking people for coffees, asking people for a chat. Um, and as my dad always says, they can only say no, um, which has become my my sort of mantra. They can only say no. And, uh, you know, just be really yeah if if someone's really busy that's absolutely fine you know maybe they'll come back in in weeks and say that they can do it um if not never mind but um yeah just being really resilient confident and just really going for it and having a really clear idea of what you want to do um I didn't change career once I become a mum I'd already changed career into journalism but uh I think finding work that feels like you or is really attuned to you and your values um and what fits sort of morally and ethically with you is really important um And also knowing that you've got options and you can always say no to things. Um, So in the, they could only say no, you could also say no. Um, And yeah, just using, using your time as best you can so that you can enjoy being a mum, enjoy being at home with your family, um, but also really get a lot out of your work um, and really feel that you're kind of reaching your potential. I think, I think it's eminently possible to do both.
0: That's that's fantastic that's what a way to end it (laughs) what a fantastic way to end thank you you so much Um, uh, thank you for listening if you'd like to hear more from Nicola you can listen to the silent podcast on Spotify or follow her on Twitter at Nicola Kelly make sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear our next episode and follow us on social media for more amazing content we'll see you next time